0: This is Archive Atlanta, episode 31, Women of Sweet Auburn. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. This week I get to do an episode that I've been planning for a while. Groups often schedule private tours with the Atlanta Preservation Center and I have given the Auburn tour to many different types. Usually it's like 40 8th graders. Um, Sometimes a convention here and there, or um, a really large family. But one day I was asked to lead a tour for a commercial real estate women's group. And they asked me something no one ever had. To tell the stories of the women. And I'm not going to lie, I was mad at myself for never having done that on my own. I tell these stories all the time, and I noticed that I just kind of took what was handed to me, or the stories that were often retold over and over, never trying to find something new. When I did the work and I looked at the street from the female perspective, I was blown away. As if the stories of Southern women are not revolutionary enough, the story of Black Southern women doing things in times when most didn't was so inspiring. Today I'm going to take you on a virtual walk down Auburn Avenue and tell you about the women that were making things happen on this street. Now, my disclaimer before we get started is that there are some big names on this block, Coretta Scott King, for example, and I do want to mention the big names, but I also plan to do future episodes that will speak more about them and their families. So save me the hate mail um, about how I glanced over the grades or forgot to mention someone, but just know that more will come in the future. Let's start in the residential part of Auburn, around the King birth home. The neighborhood itself has a great history. Uh, It was an all-white neighborhood that changed to an all-black neighborhood around the turn of the century. But it was also an upper-middle-class African-American neighborhood, which was, you know, a rare thing in America at the time. I talked about this in the Alexander Hamilton episode, but um, this is where Hamilton built his home, along with prominent ministers and real estate developers. On the block today, there is an empty lot with a lone plaque on the sidewalk that tells the story of the Bryant Preparatory Institute. Sylvia Cecil Jenkins Bryant was born in 1874 in Savannah and educated at the Beach Institute. She would later move to Atlanta and attend Spellman, beginning her career as a teacher, as most young Black women had, and in 1892 she marries Peter Bryant. Peter would become pastor of Wheat Street Baptist, which I talked about in episode 12, and it was during his tenure that the church would endure the 1917 fire and then rebuild where it currently stands today. Mrs. Bryant began the first school inside the church, offering literary, industrial, and religious training to kindergarten through elementary age students. In 1913, Sylvia opens the Bryant Preparatory Institute under the sponsorship of the Atlanta Missionary Baptist Association. It's described in a written visit as, quote, occupies five rooms above a grocery store downtown, end quote. The school had a total of 170 students, nine teachers, and it was designed to take kids that had been crowded out of the nearby public schools but also adults that had not received formal education before. They had cooking classes and sewing classes and kind of like everyday life classes. In 1916, Charles Clayton assumes leadership and he organizes the first night school for African Americans in Atlanta. It was popular with ministers taking extra courses and it's said that Martin Luther King uh, Sr. attended classes there. The school would stay open until 1934, which is the same year that Booker T. Washington High School opens, uh, which made that the first um, higher education for Black students in the city, so kind of closed these smaller schools. Sylvia passed away in 1920 at only age 45, and she's buried at Southview Cemetery. Quick note about Southview, almost every single person that I'm going to talk about today is buried at Southview. And, um, you know, me and my love of cemeteries, I do have a Southview episode coming up soon. Just a few doors down from the Bryant Preparatory Institute is what we now call the birth home of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The home was purchased by Reverend A.D. Williams and his wife Jenny Celeste Parks. Jenny had attended Spellman and married A.D. in 1899. They only had one child, a daughter named Alberta Christine Williams. Alberta graduated from the Spelman Seminary, and so this is when Spelman was a high school, and she went on to get a a degree in teaching. She would marry a preacher's son from rural Georgia named Michael King, and together they would have three children inside this home, one of whom we know today as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Now, as you keep traveling down the street and you cross um, at Jackson, it won't be long before you pass Cox Brothers Funeral Home, which is at 380 Auburn Avenue. This is one of my favorite buildings on the street because it's really quirky mid-century exterior. The outside seems to be as frozen in time as the inside. So if you ever peeked inside the window, you know what I'm talking about. It's kind of like a frozen time warp. What I also love about this business is that the name is misleading. Emily Cox established Cox Brothers Funeral Home in 1900 with her two sons, Alan and Charles. Its original location was on Pryor Street and it moved to Auburn Avenue in the 1920s. In 1931, they opened a new building in East Point, and then in the 1940s, they opened another one in Decatur. The company also established an association for uninsured families. So all of the families would chip in small amounts every month, and then they would be able to provide proper burials to those in need. Today, this building on Auburn stands as the oldest Black-owned funeral home in Atlanta. Just a few doors down, at 364 Auburn Avenue, is another funeral home that doesn't immediately show any connections to women unless you know the story. In 1930 Atlanta, 90% of black women worked as domestic workers. 57% of all black women worked, compared to 20% of white women, and every other woman in the city labored as a domestic worker. With that knowledge, it makes Geneva Hogbrooks even more special. She was born in 1888, moved to Atlanta after getting married, and she worked as a maid in the governor's mansion, this was Governor Sleaton, for eight years. She saved $100, which she combined with a $200 loan to open this business. Now, she managed another funeral home for eight years before deciding to open her own, um, and then when she first opened the It was in another location, but she shared the telephone lines with Murphy's Print Shop next door, Um, then she moved to the basement of a church, and then finally in 1937, she's at the present location that you see today. She was extremely civic-minded and active in the community, uh, a member of Wheat Street Baptist, she was a board member of the YMCA, you name it, she was on it. The Prince Hall Masonic Lodge is mentioned in the episode about John Wesley Dobbs, and it sits at the corner of Auburn and Hilliard. Dobbs led the charge to construct this in the 1940s as a headquarters for the Atlanta Prince Hall Masons. Like other Masonic Lodges, the sacred meeting space was on the top floor, but the other floors were available for office space for rent. So on the second floor, 1949, Word Radio began operations. W.E.R.D. had a program in 1952 called Freddie's Fashion Forum. Freddie Henderson was the first African American to receive her fashion merchandising degree from NYU. She also owned a custom dress boutique in Atlanta. She became associate professor of applied art and clothing at Spelman. She was fashion editor for the Associated Negro Press. And she started Henderson Travel Service, which was the first Black-owned travel agency in the entire Southeast. Also inside this building was the Atlanta franchise of the Apex Beauty College. Started by Sarah Spencer, who was a New Jersey hairdresser, Um, she went from a one-room beauty shop in 1913 to owning the largest New Jersey Black-owned business in the 1930s. So aside from cosmetics, she had a publishing company, lab, a drug company, and these Apex Beauty Colleges. This was one of 11 Apex Beauty schools across the nation, and the first male graduate of this school was Nathaniel Bronner in 1947. Now, if Bronner Brothers doesn't sound familiar, um, he went on to start his own iconic company. On the very first floor of this same building uh, was the first offices of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Shortly after the Montgomery bus boycott, the decision to form the SCLC is made, and then the very first staff members were... Dr. King, and Ella Baker. In 1958, Ella Baker moves to Atlanta to organize a campaign to enforce voting rights. For the next two years, she would serve as director of the SCLC, working in an office right alongside Dr. King. Baker would leave um, the SCLC to work with SNCC, uh, leaving an indelible legacy on the movement. Now, around the corner, so still kind of inside the Prince Masonic building, but you have to turn around the corner, we have an original Madam C.J. Walker beauty shop. Now, this is one of the last two remaining original Madam C.J. Walker beauty shops left in the country. And a lot of people have heard about Madam Walker recently. She's kind of had this burst of notoriety, rightly so. But if uh, Reese DeForest was here, and he's the man that owns that space right now, he would make sure that you knew about Annie Turnbow Malone. Without Annie, there is no Sarah Breedlove, who we now call Madam Walker. Annie was the daughter of enslaved Africans, she never finished high school, and as a child, she would practice hairdressing on her sisters. By age 20, she had already developed her own shampoo and scalp treatment, and she went around in a buggy making speeches and demonstrations. Basically, the original door-to-door saleswoman. By 1902, she's expanded her business, and she uh, establishes a a line of schools called PORO, P-O-R-O. Madame C.J. Walker was her student and her protege, and after disagreement, she left the Poro Company to make it on her own. By the 1920s, Annie was a multi-millionaire, paying the highest amount of taxes in the state of Missouri. Madame C.J. Walker took what she learned from Annie and created her own empire, also becoming a millionaire. A licensed madam shop doesn't mean that she ever set foot in Atlanta, she probably didn't, Uh, It was kind of that Mary Kay model, if you will. So you take her name, you take her products, you buy those franchising rights, and then you pave your own way and your own success. The hair care industry was revolutionary for African-American women to gain independence and financial freedom. Now there is some new artwork also on the um, kind of the building next to it. There's an arts organization that has made their home in the building next door. Um, Fabian Williams has just produced two Madame C.J. Walker pieces, so when you are walking down Auburn Avenue to go see the Masonic Lodge, you're going to see those first. Directly across the street from the Masonic Lodge is an empty parking lot, and it has kind of a square planting of bushes I think it used to be a gas station. I don't really understand the bushes, um, but it's easy to describe. So that was a spot that once had a Carnegie Library. In 1902, W.E.B. Du Bois, among others, petitioned the Carnegie Library Board to open a branch for Black citizens. There was a gorgeous library downtown on Peachtree, but there was no access to information for the Black community. Dr. Nash, who was the first Black physician on Auburn, recalls how difficult it was for him to get his hands on any kind of medical text. The board denied the petition um, for the library opening for about 20 years. They finally said yes in 1921. This branch of the Carnegie Library opened, and it was a momentous occasion for the community. This was uh, one of the first of three eventual Black libraries before integration. And the first librarian there was a woman named Alice Dugged Carey. She was the daughter of two freeborn parents in Illinois. She made her way down south where she became principal of Morris Brown and principal of the Mitchell School. And this would make her the first black woman to be principal of a school in Atlanta. Later, she would serve as the Carnegie Library's um, first non-professional librarian. As in just, she didn't train to be a librarian, but she had been put in this position and she held that position for eight years. She was politically active, um, believed that the freedom to soar had its basis in formal education, love of learning. It was her early work um, in collections in this first library that has started the base of the collections now contained at the Auburn Avenue Research Library. Back across the street and adjacent to the Prince Hall Lodge is a beautiful sliver of a building that often goes unnoticed. The Tabor Building, which it says up at the top, uh, has a great history, which I'll share another day, but the building was purchased and renovated in 1995 by Evelyn Lowry to house the SCLC Women's Organization. Lowry was born in 1925 in Memphis, and she spent a lifetime involved in civil and human rights. Her parents were both activists. Uh, She came to Atlanta to attend Clark College, and in 1950, she would marry Reverend Joseph Lowry, who worked very closely with Dr. King during the 60s movement. Evelyn marched in the historic Selma to Montgomery march, uh, and later in life, she would actually form this SCLC Women. So just down the street, um, after you see this building at the corner of Auburn and Bell Street, there is a mural by Loss Prevention that's dedicated to her that's really gorgeous. As you continue your walk down the block, there's a building that now houses, I think it's an escape room is the business there now, and there's not a lot of information out there, but Miss Scotty Sutton appears in the census records as being born in 1882, residing on Auburn Avenue, and under her occupation, it says cafe owner. Ma Sutton, as she was called, had a restaurant that was a really, really popular it's like cafe, tea house, boarding house at 312 Auburn Avenue. There are historic photos from the interior and the tables were set up really long in communal style so everybody would be sitting together. And oral histories describes the tables as filled with meat, vegetables, rolls, cornbread preserves. But basically it was like the place to get fried chicken. The business was also listed in the Green Book Guides. I know that's become popular with the movie lately, so the place was safe for traveling African Americans to patronize while they were going through Atlanta. At the corner of Bell Street and Auburn Avenue, so this is Caddy corner to the Evelyn Lowry mural, is the Oddfellows building. Very similar to the Prince Hall Masons, the Oddfellows were a fraternal organization, and this building on Auburn Avenue was to be their headquarters and office space. The tower was home to Dr. Shaw, who was the first black optometrist, David Howard, the first black embalmer, but remember, today we're talking about the ladies, and the lady of the Oddfellows building is named Ella Ramsey Martin. Ella was a student of Annie Malone's, that I just mentioned, and after marrying army cook Prince Martin in 1930, she moved to Atlanta. Here she would establish the city's first branch of the Poro Beauty College inside the Oddfellows building. The first Poro graduation was held in 1937 at Big Bethel, and they say that Annie Malone actually would come to those graduations uh, and do hair shows there. Not only did Ella teach unlicensed beauticians the science of the trade, but she would enlist beauticians to volunteer their shops for voter registration drives um, and voting projects. All about empowering and helping women, she organized the Atlanta Beauty Culturist League and eventually created the State League, and that was just to have some kind of oversight in the beauty industry in the city. Her and her husband would have no children. She would often use her basement apartment for out-of-town students. She was instrumental in getting a bill passed by the legislator that forced all shop owners to have proper training and a beauty license. Eventually, she would actually run for a seat in the House of Representatives, which would make her the first Republican woman in Georgia to run for office since the Civil War. Now, Carrie Cunningham is up next, and she's possibly my favorite woman on the block. And there's very little information found about her, but if anyone has more to share, please let me know. Born in Fitzgerald, Georgia in 1890, the story is that she ran away with a circus. The Silas Green Show, which was an African-American-owned and operated variety tent show, kind of like a circus vaudeville thing, they were looking for a young chorus girl to ride the white horse on stage. And the way that Carrie told it, she, quote, got on that damn horse to get the hell out of Fitzgerald and see the world, end quote. I'm not quite sure how she made her money, but in 1949, she purchased both the Top Hat Club and the McKay Hotel on Auburn Avenue. And she would rename the club as the Royal Peacock, which stands today at 186 Auburn. And she would name the hotel Hotel Royal, which was located inside the Citizens Trust Bank building, which has since been demolished. She was a larger-than-life personality, very flamboyant, um, always decked out in her favorite peacock jewel tone colors, and in Little Richard's autobiography, he says that she was the first person he ever met to have diamonds in her teeth. She was also very active in the civil rights movement, joining the NAACP in 1942, and then consistently hosting meetings either at the hotel or the club. She was also a very close friend of MLK's. Now, the Herndons are getting their own episode one day, but I cannot help telling Adrienne's story. Adrienne Elizabeth McNeil was born in 1869 in Savannah, Georgia. She would attend Atlanta University and then the Boston School of Dramatic Arts. While identifying as African American to her friends and her family, professionally she would go by the name of Anne Dubignon and claim Creole background. If you were trying to get a role as an actress at this time and you were Black, it was not happening. And she would get to this point where she would make it past auditions, and then once her race was revealed, she'd hit a roadblock. When she married Alonzo Herndon in 1894, she was very clear that if they got married, he had to support her career. And he did. And she tried and tried, um, and finally, without success, she would move back to Atlanta and become a professor at Atlanta University. She also designed their mansion by herself with no formal, you know, architecture degree or anything. Uh, and the mansion still stands today. It's the Herndon home. And again, I hope to talk about it in a future episode, but you should definitely go visit that. And the last woman I want to talk about today is Carrie Steele Logan. Although she does not have a tangible place left on Auburn Avenue, her bust is outside the um, Auburn Avenue Research Library, so you can see a picture of her. And her story begins on this street. Born enslaved in 1829, after emancipation, she would work as a maid in train depots. And while working at Atlanta's Union Station, she would grow concerned about the amount of homeless Black children that she saw every single day. She got permission from the train station to gather the children, she would stick them in an empty boxcar during the day, and then every night she would bring them home to her house on Auburn Avenue. Now, I cannot for the life of me, figure out where her home was. But if anyone knows, please tell me. Um, She would sell that home on Auburn Avenue in order to open a larger official orphanage in another part of town. So there it is, the stories of the women of Auburn Avenue. There are a few that I missed and more that I want to delve deeper on, but those episodes are coming in the future. Remember to rate and review the podcast if you're enjoying it, and if you have anything you'd love to hear an episode about, please let me know. As I promised last week, I'm going to let the fifth graders at Clarkville Elementary give my send-off today.